This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramonin for Charles Feldman today. President Biden stands with Israel. He made that very clear in his speeches. We go in-depth into whether the U.S. can help ease tensions in the region, especially after the explosion at that hospital in Gaza. Incursive writing may be a lost art, but it may soon be rediscovered in schools in California. We're going to go into depth uh, why this might help students in other academic areas as well. Also, offices are filling up with workers again. Is remote work fizzling out? But we are going to start with the Israel-Hamas war and President Biden's trip to Israel and what it means for the rest of the Middle East. Uh, And we are also being told that uh, Robert Berger is going to be with us here. And we're going to talk about uh, this uh, situation that's going on right now in Gaza. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Good to be with you. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, Biden was scheduled to visit Jordan Uh, He was scheduled to meet with Arab leaders today, but the summit was called off after the hospital explosion and when Israel was immediately um, accused of bombing this hospital. In light of what has come out, what's been posted by the IDF and Israel's official Twitter account and IDF's official Twitter account about what they say is evidence that it was not them, um, what is your opinion of what happened, and is there a chance that this may clear the way for Arab leaders to continue to uh, have a summit with President Biden? Yeah, so that summit was canceled um, in the wake of that hospital blast. But, I, you know, you mentioned the IDF and Israel's version, but President Biden was here today and basically backed Israel's version. And now what we're hearing from uh, U.S. intelligence, independently of what Israel said, is that it was an errant Palestinian rocket uh, fired by, uh, Israel says, by the Islamic Jihad group. And there's even video evidence of this because a number of cameras uh, by various TV um, stations caught uh, the the Palestinian rocket fire and then the explosion at the hospital pretty much in the traje- trajectory. However, uh, the, Isra- the Arab world and the Arab street simply don't believe it. They, they think that Israel was behind the attack, and a lot of people think it was even deliberate. All right, we're going to dig into that a little bit more in our next segment here on In Death today. But I want to talk about President Biden being there and uh, offering uh, support for Israel and also uh, making sure, uh, telling us that there's going to be some humanitarian aid going in and saying that it will, uh, they're going to make sure it's not going to go to Hamas. How do they ensure that? How, what's the best way to guarantee that uh, uh, aid's not going to go to the people who are going to misuse it and it's going to go to people who need it? Right. Well, that's uh, the big dilemma. And if, you know, judging from the past uh, experiences, once that aid gets in, I don't know how you prevent it from getting to Hamas. And Israel's condition, which was a concession to President Biden, Mr. Biden saying, look, we're we're giving you unequivocal support, everything you need to defend yourself, but you've got to ease up on this humanitarian crisis in Gaza, you know, and stop the siege. So Israel said, okay, um, we'll allow the food in, but it can't get, as you said, it can't get to Hamas. But once it's in there, um, what's to stop militants uh, from coming out of their tunnels underground and seizing some of those supplies? 
All right. So we're going to ask you, Robert, CBS correspondent Robert Berger, to stand by here. Let's go to Paul Salem, president and CEO of the Middle East Institute, and uh, get your thoughts on what is happening with the situation of with the hospital in the Gaza Strip and and all of the evidence that's been flying around on social media saying, you know, back and forth, it was Israel, it wasn't Israel. Well, obviously, I mean, like they say, the first victim in war is truth. It's hard to find out for sure what's happening, especially on short notice. Uh, but kind of what's politically relevant is everybody's reading it as they want to read it. Uh, and what worries me is that in the in the wider region, in the Arab countries, you know, when it initially happened, there was an immediate assumption that it was Israel because, you know, there was a war going on. And maybe that assumption wasn't, you know, altogether, you know, surprising. But then it turned out that the situation is much more complicated. But in the meantime, you know, protests have erupted in all of these capitals. The King of Jordan canceled the summit that he was planning with President Biden, which had included the Egyptian president and the head of the Palestinian Authority. So politically, it's already uh, had a a massive impact. I'm sure it impacted, you know, President Biden and, uh, you know, him dealing with all of this, uh, that, you know, the risk of, of, uh, you know, civilian losses and the impact that has politically throughout the region, and I dare say the world in general, is something that certainly President Biden has to take uh, very much account of, which is why I think he leaned very hard to try to get that humanitarian aid. He pledged the American support, try to get a corridor. Uh, Unfortunately, I think, you know, this war is going to go on for a long time. And there are, you know, 2.2 million civilians trapped uh, in this very, very tight and very, very you know, congested area, you know, yesterday was the hospital, uh, tomorrow it'll be something else. And unfortunately, you know, they're going to be caught in the crosshairs. All right. Paul Salem, President and CEO of Middle East Institute. Thanks for joining us. Also, uh, CBS correspondent Robert Berger, who is in Jerusalem. Right now, though, Israel has been showing and releasing what it says is evidence that its forces did not strike the hospital in Gaza What is that evidence specifically? President Biden, too, says the U.S. has reached that very same conclusion. Mark Garlasco is a military advisor at Pax for Peace. He's a war crimes investigator, former Pentagon mid-level intelligence analyst. Uh, Mark, uh, based on what you've seen, uh, what can you tell us about the explosion? Well, I've been a war crimes investigator for the last 20 years, and I've been investigating a number of, well, hundreds of airstrikes. And when you look at uh, the visual evidence that you see in the photos, The one thing I can tell you is it was not an airstrike, right? We see a hole. I mean, honestly, it's not much more than a a pothole. And the complete lack of cratering is just not consistent. What you would normally expect from an Israeli bomb that hit the the ground. I would figure anywhere from a three to 10 meter, right? So maybe a a 10 to 30 foot crater. Uh, That's what you should typically see as well as pretty widespread blast and fragmentation damage. And instead, at this site, we see a lot of thermal or fire damage. So basically, everything there is pointing away from an Israeli airstrike. And Mark, uh, President Biden has also said that the U.S. at this point believes that this was not likely a strike by the Israeli military and does support the Israeli military's findings on this. But there's been so much back and forth on social media about who's lying about this. The IDF's official Twitter account and Israel's official Twitter account has provided extensive 
proof that they say is irrefutable when it comes to where that missile actually came from. But this has turned into some information warfare between those who are uh, pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel. How can people look at the evidence that has been presented online and these social media sites and decide also for themselves as well uh, what happened here? Well, I think that you need to look at the physical evidence that we're taking a look at and try not to be, you know, sucked into some of these, you know, conspiracy theories about, oh, was it some some special new weapon, something we've never seen before? You know, the, the vast majority of things that kill civilians in warfare have been around since the First World War. And so by taking a visual look at the site, that will give us a better understanding of it. Of course, the gold standard would be to send in a UN war crimes team that is able to take forensic evidence from the site, get pieces of the bomb, and then have a positive identification. That said, while I can tell you I don't believe this was an airstrike, uh, identifying specifically what it was is more difficult. I will say that the Israeli uh, statements that it was most likely a Palestinian rocket that flew out and um, didn't make it and came down and struck the hospital, it does fit what we see visually. You know, there's a lot of, of fire damage on the ground, uh, which is not something that you see from aerial bombs. But if a rocket is coming out and it has not uh, gotten past its apex yet and is still filled with fuel, that fuel mixed with the warhead when it comes down can, in fact, give the visual identifications that we're seeing, you know, massive fire, cars uh, basically melting. Uh, and unfortunately, when it comes down to it, you know, 500 dead civilians, which is really the most important part here is the concern that we should be having for the civilian population. Is there ever going to be any, say, satellite confirmation of uh, seeing a, a, a rocket take off from a point and then hitting that point? I doubt we're going to see that. You know, the U.S. military has satellites uh, which show uh, rocket launches uh, and other thermal effects. Uh, I doubt that they're going to be releasing that information. I think most likely what we're going to be seeing is the uh, continual release of videos uh, that were taken at the time, uh, people uh, analyzing those to a, to a tighter way, but also hopefully getting to the physical evidence there, right? I think that needs to be looked at if you want to try to get some kind of attribution. When it comes down to it, though, we're still dealing with 500 dead civilians, and we need to have a ceasefire and end this conflict as quickly as possible, because not only do we have dead Palestinians at this site, but we have Israelis that have been taken from their homes, their family members have been killed, and, and they are now captive within Gaza. So it's terribly important for civilians on all sides that this conflict ends as quickly as possible. You said at the core of this, of course, is the loss of human life on both sides, which ties into the proof that that is a concern for the U.S. and Israel with the large humanitarian package that was just approved to help civilians in Gaza and, and to get aid and uh, and concerns about whether or not it'll be diverted to Hamas. Well, I think that we can can safely say that there are organizations that are capable of of taking that aid and bringing it to the civilian population. You know, you look at World Food Program at the United Nations, you look at the International Committee of the Red Cross, they have a long history of taking aid into war zones and ensuring that it gets to the civilians. Uh, for example, I worked on a case in uh, 2016 uh, in Syria 
where there was a World Food Program uh, convoy and they were bringing aid to uh, Syrians in Aleppo. Unfortunately, that convoy was struck by the Syrians and many people were killed. But we in the UN were able to show that the World Food Program did have the proper security in place to ensure that no militants were coming in and taking any of the food or the aid. I think there's certainly ways to do that. And I'm hopeful that the Rafah border crossing will open and allow U.S. citizens and others out of Gaza and bring in that aid to the civilian population. All right, Mark Galasco, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, bosses seem to be winning this battle when it comes to bringing workers back to the office. We're going to take a look at why. Uh, Right now, though, the case is finally closed into the disappearance of teenager Natalie Holloway. She vanished in Aruba back in 2005. The case captivated the whole country. Uh, Today, the uh, longtime suspect in her death, Joran van der Sloot, admitted in court to uh, murdering Holloway. Nima Romani is a former... uh, uh, federal prosecutor and current president of West Coast Trial Lawyers, thanks for, for uh, joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, as always. So in addition to this admission we've got, uh, and we're going to get into that, but first of all, why did this case gather so many eyeballs and so much attention? What was it about it that fascinated everyone? Well, anytime a young American girl disappears, it's going to get attention, but especially when she disappears in a foreign country uh, while she's on break. And frankly, her family did a good job advocating for her. But really, you know, folks like Nancy Grace and others in the media just kept the spotlight on. And, you know, it, the reality is, you know, whenever you have a young, attractive white girl and she goes missing, it's just going to get a lot more attention than other types of cases. You know, so uh, Euron Vandersloot agrees to uh, fess up, basically, to this murder. It was part of a deal in his extortion case uh, where he was uh, convicted of trying to extort Natalie Holloway's mother in exchange for information about her daughter's death. But why do you, I mean, it seems like he would want to hold on to this Uh, confirmation, especially since he's already in prison for murdering a Peruvian woman um, several years ago. What did he have to gain in this? He's already in prison for quite a while now. Well, he had a lot to gain because even though he got a max 20-year sentence, that's the most he can get for wire fraud, he's doing concurrent time with the 28 years he's doing in Peru. And even though he gave up this information, it can't really be used against him. He gave it up in a proffer, and the statute of limitations has already run in Aruba. That's 12 years. And we can't prosecute him here in the United States for foreign murder because he's not a U.S. national. So essentially, he gave up this information to give the family closure, but it's not going to add any additional prison time. So would you say that justice wasn't really served here, in your opinion? It was not. And I don't know that there was much we could do. It was really an Aruba case. And because the Aruba authorities weren't able to prosecute him, or at least successfully, for the murder, um, you know, we're really limited. Again, there's there's foreign murder statutes. There's things that can be done. But again, it really applies to U.S. nationals murdering U.S. nationals abroad. This was strictly an Aruba case. 
Right. So U.S. had no jurisdiction or no authority to do anything. But in light of all of this now with his sentence in uh, Peru and now this in the U.S., how is his prison time going to go down? How is this going to be served? Well, he has been serving prison time in Peru. And even though he was indicted here in the United States years ago for this extortion and fraud scheme, uh, he wasn't extradited. It was really kind of part of a, a prisoner exchange. And even that deal was he was going to come here. He was going to answer to these charges. But any time he served would have to be after that sentence in South America. So, you know, the benefit to Vandersloot for giving the family the closure, I believe, that they wanted is that he's going to get concurrent time. He's not going to get consecutive time. All right. So uh, very quickly, as far as Natalie Holloway's story is concerned, certainly not for her family, I'm sure. But is is that it? Is there no more to do with Natalie Holloway's case? Uh, is, can the family do anything else? There's not much they can do. They got some restitution. It's certainly not going to mean a lot for losing your loved one. And I doubt Vandersloot will ever be able to pay those hundreds of thousands of dollars. But, you know, to the extent that his story actually checks out and, you know, Natalie Holloway's body is somewhere you know in the sea and it's not to be found uh, maybe it'll close this very dark chapter uh, for the holloway family and they can hopefully finally put all this behind them and nima romani thank you so much for joining us former federal prosecutor current president of west coast trial lawyers now with Joran Vandersloot admitting in court that he murdered natalie holloway you are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramone in for Charles Feldman. In this day and age, we don't really uh, write very much with, you know, a pencil and pen. It's usually on a keyboard, on the phone. Uh, some of us have probably even forgotten how to write our names in cursive. Fortunately, we don't have that problem here at KNX, Elsa, as you know. Uh, when you work here and you control the board, you have to sign a thing, yeah. every page of it as you go. So I can still write my name in cursive. But I don't think I can write anything else in cursive. Really? No, 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 no. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's forgot. ingrained in my brain. I did not forget, but that's not gonna that's not gonna be the case for kids in California all the time. Governor Newsom just signed a bill requiring cursive instruction in first through sixth grade. Now you're saying, wait, they're already learning it. Yeah, it's currently part of the state standard, but it's not always emphasized, and there's no real like strict guideline on when exactly they start learning it. Dr. Kelsey Latimer is a clinical and school psychologist and founder of KML Psychological Service. Kelsey, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So why is it important to preserve that skill? Uh, you know, everything is so keyboard centric. Our kids, my kids were born basically with a keyboard in their hands and everything is via email. Even birthday cards and that type of thing are sent by e-cards. It's it may be a lost art, but you say there might be other reasons that are beneficial to keep learning it. Oh, absolutely. I think you're spot on, too, in terms of why maybe it was one of the standards that was let go over time, because teachers and school systems have so many things they need to accomplish that maybe it is just a lost art. But the research actually shows a heck of a lot more. What we know is that writing, handwriting, and in particular cursive is not just a motor skill. It's actually a language skill. So the parts of the brain that are lighting up when we're actually taking the, the hand and the pen to the paper are parts that actually emphasize our, our reading abilities. So things like our, the areas of the brain that light up with spelling and what we call phonological processing, which is letter recognition and sound recognition. So it's a multi-sensory experience that is allowing children to actually become better readers. 
And we know that that is definitely something that we want our kids to do. That's not just an art. That's something that's a necessary skill of life. And and what about adults? You know, I, I uh, have for years and years, even before there were phones, I began writing on a, on a kind of a typewriter thing. Remember those? I had one of those. And then I started writing on, you know, a computer. And uh, nowadays, uh, kids don't even send an email that much. Everything's Everything is text-based. And it's not even text anymore. It's emojis. It's all emojis. Right. So we're losing language skills. But here's what happened. I tried to write something in longhand because I've heard what you're telling us that it helps the brain. Uh, I got a hand cramp after about five minutes and I had gotten three words out. Uh, so <laughs> I can type a lot faster than I can write. But would it be good for adults also to practice handwriting skills? Would it, does it help the adult brain at all or is that just kids? Great question. Um, I too can, I can totally empathize with you, by the way, my handwriting used to be beautiful. And now people make fun of me at school because they it's, it's, you can't read it. It, it just doesn't look like anything. So I understand that, but the research will kind of indicate that, you know, for those of us that have those foundations, it still is helpful because what it's doing is it's the reading skills, right? That the kids need to learn and know, but for all people, including adults, it's actually helping um, the part of the brain, like the, the frontal part of our brain, which is involved in executive functioning. So this is things like memory planning, um, working memory, uh, making good decisions, things like that and creativity at the same time. Um, so it's emphasized that actually picking up the pen and just practicing some cursive is almost equivalent to um, getting music lessons. So it's very helpful for laying down new pathways in the brain and for actually remembering, even though you only wrote three words, you'll probably remember those three words more than you would if you wrote paragraphs. Because they were painful. And it's going to be more painful, yeah. Because it (laughs) caused Rob's hand cramps. But knowing all of the benefits now behind something that just seems so simple, is there a particular group of kids or people that writing in cursive would benefit more over others? That's a great question. Um, I don't have, you know, specific, I'm just going to go off of anecdotal information here. I think that, you know, I work with kids in the school system and there's more and more kids every day that we're seeing that are are dealing with um, learning disabilities. So for your average kids that, you know, they're, they're accommodating, they're doing okay. So even they're not learning cursive, but they're still doing fine in school and maybe even excelling. I would say for the kids that are struggling with learning disabilities, we really need to take this research and do something with it and maybe start there because it's the multi-sensory um, connection between what I'm seeing on paper and using it with my hands. And that goes back to the early learning systems of uh, of reading way back when. Um, so I would say that those are really a, a key population we, we should be focusing on. Dr. Kelsey Latimer, thank you so much for joining us. A clinical and school psychologist, founder of KML Psychological Services about uh, cursive handwriting, uh, handwriting returning for kids in schools, and maybe it would be good for all of us. Remember when it seemed like everyone was working from home, of course, during the pandemic, it appeared that would probably stick around for a while, right? But not so, apparently. New numbers from the Census Bureau show just over a quarter of U.S. households still have somebody working at home at least one day a week. That is down from 37 percent in early 2021. Now, here to explain why this trend is reversing is Brett Good with Talent Solutions and business consulting firm Robert Half. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I'm thinking it's the obvious answer, but maybe I'm wrong. The obvious answer is the pandemic is 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 over and it's ending and all the work from home requirements are going away. And now businesses really want those people coming back in to enjoy the work environment for those very expensive office spaces they have rented. 
<laughs> well, that's that may be part of it, but I think there's more to it than that. When you look at some of the studies that have come out post-pandemic, I think the biggest issue that stands out has been the productivity numbers and what they have found as they've evaluated them is productivity working from home, fully remote, was down roughly 12 to 17%, depending upon the study that you looked at. So organizations are now saying, you know what, if we can bring our talent back into the office, will that improve productivity? But there's certainly challenges with that as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, a lot of companies during the pandemic also found that they could save so much money by having a lot of their workforce work from home and downsize from such a large, expensive brick and mortar facility that could save them money and also have happier employees. You would think that maybe with those numbers uh, of lower productivity would be balanced out by having to uh, or getting to shave off some of the overhead for these companies in office space. Well, I'll take a little bit different of a slant on that in that when you look at organizations that are either owning property and or especially in L.A., Orange County, San Diego, et cetera, where I'm from, many of them are signing five and 10, 12 year leases. So they've got a fixed cost associated to that. So they're paying the rent regardless of whether the people are in or out. So that's a fixed cost. So at that point, they're looking at other issues such as, as I said before, productivity. The other item is culture and camaraderie. And then also as you're integrating new employees into your organization, the L&D or the learning and development and the training that needs to take place is quite significant. And I think organizations have found that when people are fully remote, it is significantly harder to get them trained and indoctrinated into the culture. So the brick and mortar is less of an issue because many of those are fixed costs that will go on uh, for quite some time. Let's look at it from the other side, from the uh, worker uh, side of the equation. There's got to be a psychological aspect, too, because I was thinking, you know, if I could do my job from home, that would be great. It's so much more convenient. I don't spend as much money in gas. I can dress however I will. Well, I kind of dress how I want now. Uh, but, I mean, I could sit there and not have to put on pants if I want to do my job. I don't think anybody <laughs> else would enjoy that. But then I start thinking, well, now I'm always here. I'm always at home. I never go out, which is kind of sad when you think the only thing that gets me out of the house is I'm going to work. But is there that psychological aspect, too, where people suddenly realize my environs never change? Yeah, there's absolutely a psychological aspect to it. And some of it right now, which is really interesting, is that old jargon FOMO, fear of missing out, which has more and more of your colleagues are going into the office going to happy hours, traveling in, and you're sitting at home, they're thinking, oh my gosh, what am I missing? Who am I not meeting? Is this going to be detrimental to my career, to my progression, et cetera? And so many more people are now open to coming into the office, but there's still that juxtaposition of what employees are wanting versus employers where employers from the job orders that we are taking and we're working on, they want staff in the office five days a week working for the most part. And yet from a employee perspective, they're looking more and more to flexibility and hybrid, which is, hey, you know, I'd love to come in three days, but maybe I can take some other time off. 
you just need to listen to a KNX travel report in the morning traffic report, and <laughs> you can hear what's happening on the 405 and the 101 and all the other freeways. It's much busier, and it's probably pre-pandemic traffic that we have now, and there, there are certainly those issues. But I think those two constituents are coming closer and closer together of what makes sense. Yeah, I I know, uh, you know, definitely maybe there's some happy medium here, part-time at home, part-time at work, if your position allows for that. And Uh this is probably part of a much broader discussion on its own. But quickly tell us, you know, I think it had a much more positive impact working from home and remote work for those who are disabled in various different ways. And it opened up so much more opportunity for the disabled community. How do you factor that in to trying to force everybody to go back into work? Yeah, no, absolutely. There are certainly some employees that had certain issues and it could be far beyond disabilities, et cetera, if the organization had the technology and the capacity to allow for remote work, that was a huge boon for those individuals. But reflect back to March 13th of 2020, when we called the lockdown in California, that many organizations didn't have all the requisite technologies in place to satiate those needs. And so fast forward to where we are today, I think many of them that have those capabilities, if the position is warranted of being remote, then that's a great win for both of those parties. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Brett Good with Talent Solutions and business consulting firm Robert Half. Fewer workers are uh, working remotely these days. That's going to do it for KNX In-Depth. Elsa Ramon and for Charles Feldman, I'm Rob Archer. We'll see you tomorrow at 1 p.m.